everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. Nobody but you can establish boundaries for work-life balance, and women in particular seem to think that working longer, working harder, is how you show loyalty to a company and it's how you get ahead and it is not. I can remember very clearly looking, I called him Golden Boy in the book, but I would look at this guy called Golden Boy and he seemed to have balance. He would go on family vacations. He had time off and there I was burning the candle at both ends and I thought, he's just playing politics, you know, he's a brown noser. But when I stopped and pulled back and really looked at what was going on, he was better at establishing his own boundaries for himself and he understood what the company valued and so he did the work that was most important. Today is going to be epic because we are going to be discussing a very, very important topic to all of us, which is our careers, career growth, career advice, intentional careers. I mean, the topics are endless with my guest today, who is an expert, and she is the best-selling author of Unspoken Truths for Career Success. She's also known as the job doctor, and She's just exploded on social media. I think it started with a TikTok post, and then from there, she became, as they say, an overnight sensation. So I am really, really intrigued to speak to her because I've read many of the things that she's written and her journey, and it really struck a chord with me in my life, and I know it will with you. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Tessa White, otherwise known as the Job Doctor. We are so happy to have you here today, Tessa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. Very nice. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, you're awesome. So it's easy to give you a good introduction, right? So, okay. So you have been in the human resources business for maybe 20 years, and you've had a variety of jobs in, you know, all sorts of different kinds of companies. And you also worked with uh, Covey. Yeah, Stephen R. Covey. Yeah, because I've read his books and stuff. So I would like to start by you explaining to us your journey, how you got to become the job doctor and a best-selling author and TikTok sensation. And I just want to hear this because I think it's so intriguing and it is going to resonate with a lot of people. So everybody stay tuned, get your popcorn, because this is a story (laughs) that you need to listen to. Oh, it's so hard to consolidate a lifetime into just, you know, talking points or short story. But what's interesting about my story, I think, is I started without a college education. I ended up getting married at 19. I had three kids and I found myself in a situation where I was going to be divorced and had no way to make a living for my family. I mean, I knew I could type, I knew I could talk to people, but I really didn't know how I could make a living. And I ended up quite luckily starting as a secretary of all, you know, that that was my beginning job at Stephen R. Covey's company, which was one of the best things that could have ever happened because his leadership principles were ingrained in me from such a young age. And I was able to take those and learn a lot. So I moved from an admin into HR. And I got my first huge break as the head of HR at a company called Corel Corporation. It was really well known at the time. And it was a tech company. And they 
they were going to shut their U.S. operations and everybody in HR quit. And I was the only one left. I was a recruiter. And they said, Tessa, by default, you are now the head of HR. So that was my first HR job because nobody wanted to shut down U.S. operations. And to make it even worse, they said, hey, if you we need you to keep people here, but we don't want to pay severance. But you have to keep them here till we close the doors. How do you do that? Yeah. How, how do you do that? It doesn't seem like it's real, but this is what I did. I found everything that wasn't bolted down in the building and I bartered it for people to stay. So I would go to software developers and say, I'll give you the fridge in the break room and the Xbox and all the games and these two big monitors if you'll stay until this date. And everything in the building had post-it notes on it. So that was my that first. It's like a big auction. I like it. Yeah. That was my foray into HR. And if you fast forward again, I ended up working in a Fortune 50 company, which was fantastic to get that experience, and then moved to Vivint Solar, which was 4,000 millennials and about 10 adults in the room. The company was a crazy, fast-growing company just made up of millennials, high turnover. And they said, hey, I've got easy money for you. Never believe that, by the way. Easy money. <laughs> Come work for me for two years. I'll make you a millionaire. And it was really the hardest job I'd ever done because I walked in. They didn't know how many people worked for them. We were hiring 200 people a week. There was me and one other person in HR. That's it. And we were going public in six months. So that was the difficult thing that got me into Vivint Solar. But I learned a tremendous amount there and ended up doing a lot of really cool things for that company and led the Blackstone Compensation Committee with Blackstone and ended up being a really successful transaction for them. So then at the height of my career, I just said, you know what? I need to leave this business. I want to help the individual. I've always wanted to do that. And I'd had some life shifts happen. We had a daughter try and commit suicide. It really shifted my thinking around priorities and so how how were you able to balance? I mean, obviously, that's a very stressful thing going on over here in your personal life. And it's probably not ever far from the center of your mind, Never. you know, because you're worried. What was the thing that made the penny drop where you just said, I can't do these two things at the same time anymore? With her situation, it simply was a matter of life or death. And I went into my CEO and just said the words. And I knew the minute I said them, I couldn't take them back. And what I took was a really long leave of absence. I took a long leave of absence to help through that period. And that was time I needed to think about what was important. And I came back and decided that I would leave the company, but on my terms. So I had about a one-year tail after that. And we I wanted to finish some really big projects. I wanted to make sure I had my name on them. And I finished them the way that I wanted. I wanted to exit the way I wanted. And that's what we crafted. And so it was a very deliberate exit that took time. But it it let me put me in the driver's seat to do it the way I wanted, to exit the way that I wanted. Right. So that when I did leave, I could live life on my terms a little bit more. Well, you had built something significant there. So you just don't want to bail from that, right? You want to button it up before you go. Yeah, 20 years of a career, you don't want to just leave it hanging. You want to leave on a high note. Yeah, absolutely. So I would like to have a, just a, I, because, you know, I do look at things through the woman lens because I'm trying to raise consciousness amongst women that being financially organized and intentional is very good for your health. It's, so it's equivalent to self-care. And it's not just making sure that your personal finance is in order, but it's also about, you know, intentional career choice, 
advocating for yourself, so on and so forth. So I would like you to just talk a little bit to the situation with women in that they, you know, 75% of most caregiving, whether for children or for adult parents or whoever, is done by women, Mm -hmm. many of whom are breadwinners, many of whom are primary breadwinners. So, you know, what advice do you have to them with respect to career selection and just balancing this whole thing and not burning out because so many women I talk to are just tired all the time and they can't be bothered to advocate in their personal lives for other people to help them. They don't really want it. They just think it's easier to do it themselves instead of asking for, you know, telling their partner, Hey, you need to do half of the 75%. Just on that, just from a woman's lens, what would you recommend as a way to kind of navigate those tricky waters? Well, boy, this is like a lifetime, I, I, a lifetime of learning. I was single 10 years and raising my kids 10 years. Um, it was a lot. I, I would say adjust your expectations a little bit because I've learned you can have it all, just not all at once. And I tried very hard to have it all at once. And it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, I can remember driving home on my I didn't realize it was my son's birthday until I was halfway home. And a lot of women will relate to this. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's his birthday. I've got to order balloons and a cake. And I'm calling family members to show up to a party. And I just feel like crap that I have let this go. Nobody but you can establish boundaries for work-life balance. And women in particular seem to think that working longer, working harder, is how you show loyalty to a company and it's how you get ahead and it is not. I can remember very clearly looking, I called him Golden Boy in the book, but I would look at this guy called Golden Boy and he seemed to have balance. He would go on family vacations. He had time off and there I was burning the candle at both ends and I thought, he's just playing politics, you know, he's a brown noser. But when I stopped and pulled back and really looked at what was going on, He was better at establishing his own boundaries for himself, and he understood what the company valued, and so he did the work that was most important. And I found when I looked at the work I was doing, I was just working to get things checked off, but if I evaluated a good share of what I did, it it didn't make a difference to the company. So I had to really adjust and do the things the company cares about because the real job description is not the job description on paper. It's something else. And part of your job is figuring out what the company actually really does value and doing more of that and less of the things they could give a a rip about. Yeah. If you're not going to take anything else away from this today, I think this is such an important point because I think a lot of times people just don't step back and look at the whole situation and say, who's really successful around here? And and why are they successful? I do think that the narrative for women, unfortunately, has been that you can do it all. I graduated from law school in 1983 and started practicing law, which I did for a while, and then I was an investment banker. But that then there was that Anjali commercial, you know, you can bring mm, him the b- b- bacon, fry it up in a pan, and she starts off yes. in like, you know, a suit. And by the end of the night, she's made dinner, and then she's in a sexy negligee at the end of the day. And it's like, that was what we right. were. We were kind of <laughs> fed, spoon-fed this idea, like, after the feminist movement, you know, because in gear, and I was very motivated to go be this, be a lawyer and be very independent. 
But we mm-hmm. were also told like, hey, you know, you have you can do it all. You can be a great mom. You can be, you know, really, uh, you know, a sex kitten. You can be CEO and you can do that all in one day and you are just going to be fine. And that's a lie. Um, but we were kind of spoon fed that. And I also think there's this saying, you know, women are expected to work like they don't have children and to be moms like they don't work. And that's impossible. So we are very, I think, obsessed with perfectionism as women because we've been mm-hmm. told this story throughout our lives that, you know, we have to be good little girls and really try to be perfect in all ways. And and that just is a recipe for complete disaster. It doesn't work. And in in fact, I for the women listening, I beat myself up for many, many years about my inability to do it all. And my daughter went to college and she wrote a paper called what my working mother taught me. And I'll get teary just talking about it. She said, my mom wasn't the one who I came home from school and she had cookies made. And my mom wasn't the one that took me to all of my sporting events. My mom taught me how to use an Excel spreadsheet and how to invest in the stock market. My mom taught me what it was to be a feminist without ever using the word because she showed me through example what you could be and what you could become. And she supported any idea that I had of what I wanted to become. And she she listed a bunch of things that helped me see that there's compensatory benefits to being a working parent that are not evident on the surface. And some of the lessons that I that she took from me helped her be really successful in college. I mean, she was very independent. She knew how to do her laundry. She knew how to cook. She had to go after the things she wanted to go after. And I did teach her things that were helpful, but it wasn't until I was in my late 40s that I actually cut myself some slack for what I didn't was I wasn't giving them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of societal pressure. You know, I think it's it's changing. Like I want to do some podcasts on women making the choice not to get married and deciding they just that's just not for them. And also making the choice that maybe not having children is for them. Like we aren't all clones, right? And I even know with my own daughter, I mean, I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years. I had that privilege. It did have, you know, when I got divorced and I had to recreate myself at 53. So there were really a lot of deleterious things that happened from some of my decision-making. But in any event, she's a lawyer in a big law firm in New York and she just got married. And she said, you know, I'm not going to, do what you did. You you know, I wish I, on the one hand, nostalgically, I wish I could, but I saw what happened to you and I don't want that to happen to me. Plus I also enjoy working and I, you know, when I was like, well, you know, we will, we will figure this out. We'll have help and, you know, you and Sam will figure it out. People will pitch in, maybe you get a babysitter or whatever. But I, I said to her, don't feel guilty. You know, like I enjoyed playing with you on the floor and blocks and all that stuff. But I think you would have been okay if uh, I wasn't there playing blocks with you for years and doing all the stuff I did with you and your sisters. It, w- it would have just been different, you know? Right. And so I, I applaud you because I know being a single mom, I was a single mom for a later t- when my kids were teenagers and it was very, very difficult. And I did that for a long time and it was hard and hard to keep track of them and keep track of the money and keep track of like my own you know, I had to reinvent myself again. So all of that is very, very difficult. So you obviously came out the other side. So you took the sabbatical. And then obviously at some point you said, okay, enough. I'm going to be, was the TikTok video before you left or after you left? 
That was after I left. So I left not knowing exactly what shape or form the next stage would take for me. People thought I was crazy. They were like, you're at the height of your earning potential. Why would you leave right now? This is one of the best jobs in Utah. And I said, because I'm not getting any younger and I really want to try something else. So I thought it would take form of something else, a consulting firm or something. And I started with She Team. I really had a vision to help women to, you know, second careers after returning, after a divorce, anything to help women succeed because that was so near and dear to my heart. It ended up becoming the job doctor and helping both men and women. And it happened by happy accident. My daughter posted a TikTok and she said, your stuff's really good. Let me post on TikTok. My son called me a couple of days later and said, mom, I don't think this is even possible, but my girlfriend said you're on her for you feed on TikTok. Did you, are you on TikTok? <laughs> and we looked. I had forgotten that she posted. I had 10,000 followers. And, and what did you say in the TikTok video? What was it that you were saying? You know, interviewing advice and how to get the job or how to get ahead in a company. And it just, I guess, resonated with people. I had 10,000 followers when we looked and I've had 1,000 followers per day on average since then. So it's it's hit a chord with people. And that's when I realized that the the perspective I had from being an HR person and seeing both sides of the story, seeing what they're, what's really being said and what's being said to the employee and how things play out actually is useful to share with people. And I had never thought that I had that secret information until I started talking with people and saying, say it this way, do it this way. This will work. This won't work. And realized that I had something to say and that it was really helpful for people. I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people who work in companies think that, you know, HR is this kind of dark, secretive place and you never really know what they're talking about in there. And except if, you know, people get called in because they've done something wrong or, you know, they're having all these kind of, you know, secretive discussions about raises and all that stuff. So I think a lot of people are really interested in the inner workings of HR. But I'd also like to know is after COVID and the she session and a lot of people losing their jobs, not just women, a lot of people, and then people kind of stepping back and looking at their lives and saying, hmm, I wonder whether that was really what I wanted. Did that increase the the number of people that were following you and searching for more advice? Because everybody was in transition. I, I, I think it was timing because everybody was in the pandemic. I started October 2020 and everybody was in their house and no end in sight for the pandemic. So what did we all do? We got on social media. And I think Gen Z and millennials often struggle with the workings of a dysfunctional workplace and how to get ahead in it. So there was that. But I also think just your average, regardless of their age person, was trying to figure out what next for me. Everybody was reevaluating their priorities. So I really want to talk to you about this concept of deliberate work. I would like you to expound a little bit on what that means and how you define it. And then I also, I'm wondering if that is kind of linked to the idea of hard work isn't always the ticket to success. I mean, there are ways to make more money and it isn't necessarily by always burning the midnight oil. So I don't know if those two concepts are linked. They seem to be in my mind, but I might be wrong. I think one of the lies of the workforce is that if I work hard, if I'm continually a hard worker, I'll be rewarded. And it really isn't the goal to be the hardest worker. The goal is to pick the right work to do. We get rewarded when we pick work the company cares about. And I think that's 
one of the difficult principles for people. They do first in, first out. As right. The first right. thing you see, you do. And then you just work and work. And I can remember when my husband called me one night about nine o'clock at night and said, what are you doing? This is you, this is a habit now. And I said, I have to do this. And he questioned me and said, but do you? Are the other executives doing it or are you the one left in the office? And I was, of course, the only one left in the office. And it caused me to rethink what I was doing. So the tip I would give people, I call it playing in the gap. If you think about a company as this beautiful, they describe themselves as a beautiful gleaming mansion on the hill, this perfect home. But what we all know, they're this dilapidated house, you know, that creaks and the doors don't work quite right. And your job is to get into your role and say, how can I, within the view that I have, help the company get from where it is, the dilapidated house to this gleaming mansion? What can I do within this sphere of influence? For me, it wasn't doing all of the minutia that I was caught doing, it was spending my time in helping the company uplift its recruiting numbers because we had so much to do to go public and we had to get more people in the door and we knew the numbers. And I was only spending a fraction of my time doing that and not as much, I was spending it in other areas. So you have to triage and say, what's most important and deliberately work on that and work on it when your brain's the sharpest. That's the other tip to get some time back. If your brain works at 10 a.m. the best, do the hardest things at 10 a.m. Because yeah. what we end up doing is we leave, we automatically put the hardest stuff off till the very end. Yes. And then we try and do it when we're absolutely fried and burned out and want to go home. And then we just can't get it over the finish line in the same way we could if we handled the hard stuff when our brain is the healthiest and doing the best. Yeah, I was reading something somewhere and it, who knows, you might have written it the other day and, it, and they were saying the things that we just resist doing because either we think they're unpleasant or hard or whatever, it's just best to do them right at the start of the day if we're freshest then and get it out of the way, then we will feel better and then it's done and we're not obsessing about it all day long. I'm guilty of this a lot of the times because some of the things I put off, I'm like, why am I putting this off? You know, it doesn't make any sense. I could get it done in... 45 minutes, and then it'll be done. Okay, so how does someone figure out what is most useful to the company? The first thing I would tell somebody to do is if you're kind of a mid-level or below, go talk to your manager and say, what are the most important things that we have to accomplish that will make us look good in the company, that the company really needs? Get aligned with your manager and do it on a regular basis because the goals change sometimes. It's not just a one once and done thing. And if you're a more senior person, the first thing I do is I go talk to my constituents that I work with and say, what are you expecting out of this role? What do you need? What are you seeing that hasn't been done before? Because the job description on paper is very different from the real job description. And that's part of the difficulty of sorting out what the job really is and how you win. I had an FBI negotiator talked to me once and he said, you know, the question from the person that has the hostages, it, the question that they have is never the real question. It's always buried underneath. And the same is true with your real job description and where the thing is that you really need to do. I had a recruiter who was hired to come in and help sales increase their recruiting numbers. And any normal person would have quit because he found very quickly that the sales leaders didn't want to use him. They said, we can recruit better than you can. I don't need you. 
And what he learned when he actually asked the right questions was that the sales leaders knew that they could recruit better, but they couldn't recruit in volume. They were doing it one at a time. So he shifted his job from being a recruiter to events management, and he would create these wonderful recruiting events where oh, he wow. fill the room with people and the salesperson could do what they do best and sell 20, 30, 40 people at the same time. And there was so much energy in the room that they could get all those recruits over the finish line that night. He understood that the real job was not what the real job was on paper. And I think that's the goal for everybody is to figure out what is the real need and listen very closely to the people you talk to because you will understand very quickly the actual need that they express. I think this is such brilliant advice. And I hope everyone's like writing this down and like putting in a sticky note by their computer because it's actually saying that we, we each of us has to be proactive and reaching out to our manager so that we're communicating with them on a regular basis, not waiting for them to reach out to us. We're being proactive. What is it that, you know, you're thinking about? How can I be aligned to make all these goals happen and we're in sync? But what I think I've never heard anyone say, and it makes a lot of sense, but I don't know. I've never heard anyone advise this, which is talk to your constituents, the people that are going to benefit from the job that you're doing and that you're going to have to interface with and see what it is they want from you. I think this is such brilliant advice. So I think you should write both of those things down and remember to do them and not forget because you got to do them all the time. You got to check in like maybe every quarter or something, not just once, you know, in a lifetime. But that is such good advice because then you are getting buy-in from the constituents who want probably to help you succeed since you're interested in what they want and your manager because you're showing that you're interested in what goals are on tap to be achieved and you're going to help them do it or help her do it. Yeah, I think I think we we waste so much time at work, so much time doing the job we think that people value or that they want from us. And even sometimes your manager may say it's one thing and you'll learn over time it's something slightly different. And it's really important to have those lines of communication open and act like a partner. Partners get to the bottom of things. And one of the big things in the workforce that drives everybody crazy is we all work in our silos and we say, this is what I'm going to do, but I can't see what my partner really needs. I mean, I I almost got fired because I couldn't get along with sales and I didn't even know that there was a perceived problem there. And when I started talking to sales differently and understanding what they really needed, I understood that I could get to a lot more yeses than I thought I could instead of just staying in my silo and saying, no, we can't do that. Understanding what the real problem was under the problem allowed me to be much more creative in the solutions that we brought across the finish line. And I think the organization is holistic, right? So mm-hmm. we need to look at it as a holistic situation, not just our kind of very defined role in it. So I think your, you know, your advice is is very sage because sometimes, you know, it's a, you get... It's your job, you get in, you do your bit, and then you leave and, you know, you don't really think about the whole, the whole global aspect of it for everybody else and then how they're looking at you, you, you're being perceived. So, and I guess as an HR person, you really were often looking at it as a whole because you had all the different departments and people doing different things. 
managers would come and say, I have to let this person go. I don't think they're going to work. I would say, do they know it's coming? They would say, yes, they know it's coming. And what I know for sure is they didn't know it's coming. We're really not very good at communicating with each other. And so, so much of my book focuses on how do you gain the kind of clarity you need for feedback about your own performance, about what's necessary and needed in your role, about what others are expecting and how you collaborate, because we do it very, very poorly at work. What if you have a manager who isn't very forthcoming Mm -hmm. and you want to know, maybe they just think that you're just annoying because you're asking them all these questions. I mean, how do you navigate kind of tricky situations like that? Well, here's a couple of just very quick tips. If you want to get to the truth of feedback, you don't say, how do you feel about my performance? Because we're so averse to conflict. You're going to get far more accurate feedback if you say, how do you think others perceive me? So that's one simple, simple trick to get closer to the truth. And the other thing is if you're talking to a manager and you feel like they're saying the right words, but they're still not getting to the core of the issue, then I'd say, so tell me on a scale of one to 10, where would you place me in regards to that skill or that thing, that execution of that thing? And that begins to help go, oh, it's a, it's a six. Wonderful. Tell me what what it would have looked like to be a 10. So there, there's, and my book has so many different scripts to use to try and get to the truth. And I also think you have to not just look to your manager. I think every single person should be talking to somebody who doesn't like them necessarily, <laughs> a coworker who loves them, and somebody outside of their team that they collaborate with a lot to find out what the truth is. Because if you're just waiting until your end to get your performance appraisal, you're going to get a meets expectation and nobody knows what that means. 70% of you or 75% of you are going to get that. And it's not useful. So if you want to accelerate your own performance, you have to get used to getting some feedback and you have to say it in a way that people are more inclined to give you truth. And, and part of that is also not getting defensive when you get the truth. Right, right. Just, just saying thank you. Thank you for the feedback, whether you agree or disagree with it. Right. That is so interesting. I love these ideas. I I can't wait to get to that part of the book because I think these scripts are really important. And again, we aren't taught this kind of thing in college or whatever we're going to do to prepare for going into the workforce. This is all kind of learned by the, you know, the seat of our pants as we experience certain experiences in the workforce. And Honestly, I love this idea of like, how would you rate me? How do you think other people perceive me? That takes the pressure off them, especially if you break it down by skill and you get granular. But again, I mean, it means that you have to be, do your own forensic kind of survey about this to benefit yourself and know that knowledge is power, not get offended if something said that, you know, isn't bland. It requires you to speak up. And and quite honestly, that's one of the things that's most difficult for people. I I actually did a post on this on TikTok and I had tens of thousands of people respond and they said they would 94% said I would never speak up. I would be more inclined to leave my job before I speak up because afraid of, you know, what it would mean to their job or how they're labeled. But more so than not saying I shouldn't have to write the script for my company. Um, They should know what's wrong. And, and and I'm I try to tell people, you know what, you can't get married and expect to have a relationship work out without ever speaking up. And part of the solution to the dysfunctional workplaces and feeling taken advantage of and feeling like it's toxic, part of it is being able to speak up and learn to do it in a way that maybe 
isn't broken glass or like a bull in a china shop, but being able to speak up and share where you're at is incredibly important. So many of my clients that feel like they're overworked or burned out, when I ask them, have you talked with their manager? They haven't. And your manager doesn't have a magic ball to say, this person's full. It does require your input and your help in order for them to understand yeah, and I think that's, I think a lot of times we want the company to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, with this idea of salary transparency, you know, we would like there to be a federal law. There's not. There are a couple of states that are, you know, enacting laws that say there has to be salary transparency. So we would like the government to fix it and companies to fix it. But sometimes that's just not the current situation. So you have to work with what you have, Right. And the only way to change things is from the inside out sometimes until we get enough people that support federal you know, legislation with their vote. I don't know. Get people in the Senate who are willing to vote for that. But I think you're right. You have to be able to work within the parameters of what we currently have or you'll be waiting forever for something good to happen to you. And, and so I want to segue a little bit into negotiation I've read and I cite in my book, you know, 20% of women never negotiate. They don't like to negotiate. They think they might come off aggressive or confrontational. um, Mm -hmm. And they just, they leave so much money on the table because we already make less per dollar than our male counterparts. We live longer. We have longer retirement to uh, fund. We step in and out of the workforce more. So we have more obstacles. So if we're not negotiating, we are really going to economically hurt ourselves so what can people do to become more comfortable with negotiating? And I'm sure in your book, you probably give them some scripts or frameworks upon how to begin the negotiation. But if you could give us a little teaser about that kind of stuff, because I think this is everyday things that we should be doing. I was doing a speaking engagement a few weeks ago, and I mentioned about you know, how we should all negotiate and have our macro and micro advocacy and after it, a, a young woman came up and said, oh, my company is being taken over by private equity and I wasn't going to negotiate by, about my salary. But now after listening to this, I'm going to go in and try to do it the way, you know, frame it a certain way. And I thought, well, if there's one person that got something out of this, yahoo. Um, so tell <laughs> us a little bit about that because it's integral to progression. It is absolutely integral. I would say Companies expect you to negotiate. So know that. I've been on the other side of negotiations. And I think people think somehow it's going to hurt the relationship right off the bat if you negotiate. They expect it and people are doing it. So don't be afraid to negotiate. It is part of the business cycle. The other thing is understand going in to your negotiation. You have to understand what leverage is. And leverage at its core is I have what you need. And most people don't ask for raises that way. They'll say, I'm working extra hard. I've absorbed more responsibility. I haven't had a raise for two years. And they lead with things like that. All of those are I-focused. Not one of those statements talks about what I have that you need, what the company needs. And when you can shift to say, since I came on, I've been able to reduce costs by 25% in this area. I've been able to increase the output of the team by X percent in this area. I've rolled out this program that has helped us save. 
that is the kind of language that a company will pay attention to because you're addressing their needs and how you've addressed what they want the very most. And to me, the biggest mistake people make is they really make eye-focused asks for increases. And it's not that it's it's bad. It's just that it's white noise to a company until you can start to say, I, I did this for you or here's some of the results I got for you. Then they start to pay attention. And then you can build in the other frameworks like uh, you can say, here's what the market would pay for the role. Here's what I'm asking. And, you, and the other big advice is don't give them one option. Why would you give them one option? Because you're placing them between a yes and a no. If you give them two options, you're placing them between a yes and a yes. And it's a sales technique that works in salary negotiations as well. So you might say, you know, I'll take 50000 or and a 10% bonus, but I'd also be interested in upping that bonus to 20% for accomplishing these things. And then we could keep the base at, you know, 46000 So giving them those options exponentially increases your ability to get what you're asking for. And it sounds like you're also saying if they have skin in the game, like, so if I do X, Y, and Z, you'll give me a 20% bonus or whatever the number is. But you're putting yourself on the line to accomplish those things, right? Because the company, here's what I know, company will give you what's free easier. That means titles. That means if I do it now, if then proposals, if I do this, then I get that. They love signing up for that. That's the way boards create compensation packages for executives. And so when you can understand what the company likes, free and if then, you can craft much more powerful pay packages for yourself And you can also position it in a way that they hear it. And it's covered in the book, but there's several other elements that you need to understand about what a company is going to hear versus what they're not going to hear. I I outlined six different ways you have leverage. And you need to really do your homework before you have a discussion and understand where you have leverage points and where you don't. And you don't do that unless you understand where the company's headed. I'd listen to their quarterly reports so that you understand where they're investing and where they're not investing. And how can you help them get there or how have you helped them get there and how is it critical to that? So, i.e., everybody, you've got to be engaged, right? Read the company's reports. Know about the company that you're working at because that's going to give you an edge. It's like anything. If you're prepared and you understand who you're dealing with or what you're dealing with and you can, you know, talk to them about those things that are most important to what they're trying to accomplish, then you're going to have a lot more success and you know, getting them on, on side with yourself. So I think that is brilliant. Like I've never heard anyone say, Hey, read your company's quarterly reports. If you want to understand where this company's going, doesn't matter what level of employee you are, right? It's just important to understand where that company's going. If you want to continue to be a part of it, I do want to ask you, what is the 10% miracle? Because I'm really interested. I want to know what that is because I I want some of it, whatever it might be. (laughs) The 10% miracle. I'm convinced that everybody can get 10% back of their day. Do tell. I I have an exercise where I say, how much of what you're working on, you know, ties to the, aligns to your manager's top objectives? How much of what you're doing is emails, meetings, other things that are non-value added. And, and we kind of do a worksheet. And I, and if you do these two things, you look at how you're spending your time and you're cognizant of when you're spending time doing those hardest things, 
Everybody has 10, 10%. Everybody has 10%. They can immediately get back. No announcements. No, I'm pulling back, boss. No, I'm burned out. You can get 10% of your day back. 10% of your day is 48 minutes. So let's start there. 48 minutes, that's one meeting. If you start going at it backwards from 48 minutes, then you start looking at how much time am I spending just organizing emails or doing emails a day? Or how much time did I spend not actually doing something that the company cared about? And how much did I spend in meetings that weren't relevant to important things? And Or how much time did I spend even nowadays on hold waiting to talk to someone or waiting outside of an office? Um, And how much time was done in non-productive activity? I guarantee you can come up with 48 minutes in a day. I guarantee you can. And then when you add on top of it, making sure you're doing the most productive work in the hours that you are most productive in that moment, you feel yourself. I'll catch myself several times a day going, I'm staring at emails again. And when you stop and go, what is the one thing I need to be doing right now? And then refocus yourself. I think it's more likely that you could get that most people could get 20 percent back out of their day. Yeah. Emails are terrible. I mean, I get so many of them and I try to block out time to do emails so that it's like, this is email time. And then I'm going to stop and then I'll come back as long as, you know, because if there are emails I have to respond to within the day, I I give myself a blocking mechanism, time blocking mechanism. But one of the things I want to ask you about is also these kind of meetings that are unnecessary or things that we do that are kind of unnecessary, which has to do with us saying no. It does. It has to do with that whole speaking up thing again, right? Saying to your manager, I'm evaluating how I can be more efficient. Ding, ding, ding. Those are words they love to hear. I'm evaluating how to be more efficient. And one of the things I've noticed is I'm spending a lot of time in non-critical meetings where I don't think I'm either adding a lot of value or it's it. What I need to know from the meeting, I could gather from notes or, you know, follow up. Would you be supportive of me bowing out of these meetings so that I can gain time back to work on X, Y, and Z? And it's just simply a matter of following the logic through with a manager around prioritization. I think every person should be talking to their manager once a week and say, here's my big rocks. Here's priority one. Here's priority two. And here's priority three. Are you on board that these priority ones are still priority ones? And that if we have to, if something has to give, it's priority threes. Uh, When we do that, then, then you can back into a conversation about the meeting and say, these meetings are about priority three and two. And I think that I could take that one hour back and give it to the priority one, this project, I think that would be a win for both of us. What do you think? And then you get the alignment that you need with your manager. Yeah, I think that's so good. And I love this business of checking in, you know, check in every week on the priorities, check in every month or quarter on the global goals. I mean, you know, just be proactive. But I want to ask you one question because I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this. Given, you know, what we're talking about is being intentional about our time. What about remote working? And do you think this is having a good or bad effect or is it neutral on career development and how we progress in the workplace? What are your thoughts on it? I think like most things, I wouldn't put it in a good or a bad category. It's really nuanced. I believe that it gives us better ways to get work across the finish line and balance our lives, which is a good thing. And it also creates disconnects at times, which 
isn't as positive. I think we have to have a balanced approach to it. One thing that does concern me is I don't think there's one answer for everybody. And we love, our, the old workplace loves to have, this is the answer. You work full time and it's eight to five and this is what we do. If I were to fast forward a decade, I think what you're going to see is that it's going to be more of a choose your own adventure approach to work. I think we're going to be able to choose whether it's full time, part time, contract, gig, project based, and whether it's home, remote, hybrid. And I think you're going to see Gen Z probably leading the way for this idea of job stacking and and having multiple jobs in areas that we like rather than having it be in a more traditional sense that it is today. So you mean having multiple income streams simultaneously? Yep, that's what I think is going to happen. This will fascinate you, I think, because you and I are kind of of the same uh, generation. I put out a post saying, I just went to a CFO or CTO roundtable and every one of them said, they're finding that they're having people that are working 100% remote, working two jobs, three jobs at once, full-time, same different companies. Full-time? And so your, your mind is blown. I know, just like mine. So I put it out to my people. I was absolutely dumbfounded that most of my young millennial and Gen Z said, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that. The company's not paying me for my time. They're paying me for the job. And managers were weighing in and saying they're 100% comfortable with this. I had like 74% said they were comfortable with this as a model and that it actually made them angry to think that a company would not allow them to do that, which I find, I was just like, I'm shocked at this. But my podcast is actually addressing this um, because it is a thing. It is a thing that is happening. So how do they have the time to have three? I'll settle for two full. I mean, because I'm kind of doing two full-time jobs. So, okay, I'm fitting it in. And I love this idea because I am a real entrepreneur. And I have always believed that multiple streams of income make a whole lot of sense to me. And so that's just something I've just thought about even as just a, you know, financial person. But there is only so many hours in a day. So it means that they're either being really laser focused on getting certain things done, or maybe one job has more responsibilities than the other. I don't know. How are they cutting that pie up? The only way it can be cut up is that the company's clear on what it expects in terms of identifying the projects or the work that needs to be done. And in the woman that I talked to, both companies were aware she was job stacking and working for another company. And I asked her, how many hours a day are you working then? Are you working 16 hours, which would be where my head would go? And she said, no, I'm working about 11 to 12 hours a week. And so the in order for this to work, companies have to get very clear about what a job is and what a job is worth and what success looks like. And that's why I say it could be a win if companies get clear on that and give people multiple avenues to do work for them. What they may find is that the job shortage, the shortage of workers can be accommodated by multiple people taking on the jobs they want to do as opposed to maybe the, a full job that they don't want to do. And are these people mainly remote workers or are they going to the office some of the time? These are remote workers. These are all all remote workers who are doing jobs at the same time. 
And um, I just find it to be a very, very interesting trend. But more than the trend itself is the thinking behind the trend that is so prevalent and accepted by young millennials and Gen Z that companies didn't are not paying for their time, but instead paying for a job to be done. It's very different than our generation. Our generation would say, yeah, and if you get more efficient, you should do more work. Yeah. If you are able to efficiencies, then the com- that's the way the company wins. But it isn't what the thinking is today. We've come a long way from the 1950s where people aspired to get like a job at IBM for 30 years and get benefits and, you know, start their job, stay at the job and retire from the job and just live a much more static life. And I have had many different careers. I mean, I'm, I've always, you know, I practiced law and I've been a banker, but when I moved to London, I couldn't really do what I was doing. So I started a fashion business and I've, you know, uh, helped to build a big school in England and I've done a lot of things that incorporate my skills, but aren't like exactly what, you know, I would be doing here or I'm currently doing now. But I love this idea of job stacking. I think it's interesting and I want to learn more. So I'm going to listen to your podcast about it because I do think generationally these younger people, Gen Z people have a different view of all of this and They are much more open about having a more dynamic life, I think. And also having, I hate to say the word balance because I think it's overused, but I don't know what other word to use, but, you know, more of a life work balance. And it's just not all, because I think in the 80s, there was this notion that, you know, you just had to like work really long hours and then you make lots and lots of money and everything would be, you know, greed was good and all that stuff. And I think that that is no longer the way people view things. I think people are, younger people have a different, a different view and I, and I kind of like their view better. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt their way of thinking because my ripe old age, I'm, I'm ready for a change of mind. So, okay, to wrap up, because I could talk to you all day. Let me ask you a question. So do you consult with people as a coach what is the what is the jobdoctor.com doing? It's evolving. I started with rent my brain sessions and I saw that. I love that. That was I saw that on your website. I thought that's awesome. The moment I turned it on, I was busy full time, but then I quickly learned I can only serve so many people if I'm doing one one on one. So then I moved to master classes and now I I mostly do keynotes and teach companies and people how to get along. So I'll go into companies and and teach these principles. And I'm just building a product where uh, companies can buy to have me come and mentor. I just go one chapter at a time and teach people how to be successful and create a good career plan at work and how to create a more frictionless career growth plan for themselves. So that's and I'm moving to passive training so I can just hit more people. I get so many messages in a given day, people wanting my help that I think by the end of the year, you'll probably see my my courses popping up all over the place. So that you they wouldn't have to be at a company that retains you. They could go online to your website or wherever and get a course that they could follow and, you know, take all that brilliant expertise and apply to their their work lives. Yeah, in fact, it, it goes live with Simon Sinek. I'm partnering with his team that will be available at the end of the month. And then we're just like crazy trying to build out the content I teach privately in private sessions and put it into a platform where people can take advantage of it. I think that's awesome. I I love this idea. I think uh, courses are the way to go. And I think it allows people to kind of do it at their their leisure mm-hmm. and at their, you know, their pace. And they can get, you know, you can really learn a lot without 
you know, honestly, I was talking to my middle daughter about this the other day, and she was saying, honestly, with all the online courses and um, learning that you can do now, maybe everyone doesn't need to go to college, you know, they can just kind of pick up the skills they need with all these amazing online courses. And I'm like, I don't disagree. Uh, I think we have been so linear in our thinking about everything for so long. I think what you're doing is brilliant and you have so much knowledge to impart. So I would encourage everyone to go and buy the book, Unspoken Truths for Career Success. I would like to ask you one final question and then you can tell everybody where they can see you, obviously on TikTok, because she's like a rock star on TikTok, but she'll tell you all after this. But what three things can we do to make sure that our careers don't control us and that we control them and that we don't get lost in the sauce and end up in this kind of burned out ennui and and still not accomplishing our financial goals because we're just not, we're just stuck? Um, great question. I would say, number one, get clear on where you want to go, because if you don't know where you want to go, you will not get there. And many people that I talk to are very lost as to what's next for them. And it may be an individual contributor and it may be a manager. And a lot of people don't even consider that you don't have to be a manager to grow your career. But get clear on that. Secondly, get clear on your values. You're, you shouldn't go work at a company just because it's on Glassdoor's top companies to work. That may be the worst company in the world for you to work at based on what you value. And I have a test that people can take. I think it's really important to know how you value learning and growing. How do you value entrepreneurial risk, autonomy, flexibility? How important is it working with a team you love versus not? And only when you understand yourself can you pick the right companies where you're more than likely to be successful and really play into your strengths? Most people just jump from company to company, not asking if it's a good company, but not asking the right question, which is, is it a good company for me? So I think that's very important. And the last thing is never, a company will always take as much as you're willing to give. Understand that is the truth of the company. You can love it. You can hate it. It's true. And so you then are responsible for work-life boundaries and having the conversations to make sure that you're creating good work-life boundaries. So don't think that your manager's your life coach or so they're automatically going to know. It is really up to you if you want to have work-life balance. And it does not mean that you're going to lose your job, which is a common belief that if I pull back a little, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah, the fear factor, because we're all living in fear of something your advice is amazing. On a macro level, communicate with your manager, communicate with your constituents, be proactive. On a micro level, know who the heck you are and what you value, and then try to seek out a place that is reflective of the kind of person that you are and how you get motivated and you know how you view accomplishment and what those things mean to you. But I think this, everyone needs to read this book. I know for one, I'm going to read this book all the way to the end. And I've been taking notes. So I already have notes that I'm going to be applying. Good. I, I just, you're just full of information. So, okay. Tell us all the different places that we can get some Tessa White advice. You can go to just about any social platform and find me on Job Dr. Tessa. 
So Instagram, TikTok, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find my YouTube channel, which we're just spinning up, and my Twitter channel, which we're just spinning up. But you should be able to find me just about anywhere you look. And I do live sessions on TikTok. I'm rated one of the top 1% of all TikTok creators in my space when we do live question answer. So if you have questions about your career and don't want to book a session with me, then go there and listen, listen to the wisdom of, you know, the questions and the people who have been there before you. Um, Those sessions are really fun to listen to. They're usually Tuesday nights. Okay. And how long do they last? Uh, They can last depending on my time from 30 minutes to an hour and a half. They can listen to my podcast, of course, on demand, The Job Doctor is In, and that drops every Monday. And that's where we do deep dive. It's like being a fly on the wall and listening to somebody's problem, which if it's their problem, it probably has been your problem at some point in time. And we deconstruct how to solve the problem in depth. So it's lots more than a one minute TikTok. And I find those really are useful for people. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause you, you know what? We all have the same experiences one way or the other as time goes on. So just, mm-hmm. you know, having like a, uh, analysis of someone else's situation. There's so many things that we can pull from that to apply to our own lives. Well, I, I honestly, first of all, thank you so much for affording me your time and for fitting me into your your schedule because you're obviously very busy and you're out there spreading amazing advice. You know, because look, whether we like it or not, money is intrinsic to our lives and the way that we make our money is through our careers and our jobs unless we, you know, inherit $30 billion. So, Unless you you haven't won the lottery or inherited a lot of money, you probably have to work. And I do think that it is such a big part of our lives. So we need to be intentional and we need to listen to Tessa White because she seems to have her finger on the pulse of trying to get, you know, that sweet spot. So Tessa, again, thank you so much for sharing all this. I mean, I might have to have you back again just because I think... There's like a whole lot of other things we haven't discussed. So once I finish the book, I'm going to go through it and say, okay, wait, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about that. And if you can spare some more time, then we're going to do part two of Tessa White because I'm going to refer people to you in my writings because I think some of the stuff that you said today is so important. So I'm actually stoked. Thank you. That's it. We're done. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please give us a good rating, the Fiscal Feminist podcast. You can find me at the Fiscal Feminist on Instagram, on TikTok, thefiscalfeminist.com, obviously the podcast. And you can find me on LinkedIn as Kimberly Davis. Have a great day, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. 
I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.